Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I've loved dating while abroad because I have learned so many things about different cultures from South African to Argentinian to Italian. As my sister says, dongs all over the world. (laughs) (laughs) We can cut that. Today's most interesting location independent entrepreneurs and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Danny Dirks. She is a product manager, songwriter, adventure seeker, and full-time digital nomad who has had no permanent base for the last five years and has lived in 35 different countries. Originally from Northern California, she spent two of the last five years as a program lead for Hacker Paradise, the world's first international work travel program for remote professionals. Danny is passionate about trauma-informed design and the intersection of social innovation, regeneration, systems change, and technology, and she now works as the fully remote staff product manager at the mental health care company Cerebral. She spent the pandemic in Bali, Indonesia, where she discovered her passions for free diving, surfing, and sparkly costumes. She has also been writing music since she was four years old. She currently has a catalog of over 100 unrecorded songs and recently started a project called This Is Everyday Love with the goal of capturing real love stories from around the world and turning them into songs. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. That makes me sound so awesome. You are so awesome. (laughs) You and I have known each other now for over four years. Let's just set the scene here, though, before we even talk about that and talk about where we are recording this from today and what we are drinking, because this is such an amazing environment. You and I are in Lisbon, Portugal. Yes. And we have just opened an amazing bottle of red wine. This is a red blend from the Alentejo region of Portugal, which is an incredible wine region where you and I and a group of amazing nomads just spent an epic weekend for my birthday. And it was so special and wonderful. It was so much fun. I'm so glad I flew out for that weekend. So let's get the backstory on this a little bit. Okay. So (laughs) it was literally like three weeks ago or so when you and I start chatting. I was in South America. You were in Bangkok, Thailand. And we're like, oh, what are you up to? What are your travel plans this year? I was like, oh, well, I'm going to go to Portugal for my birthday and going to go wine tasting with some friends in Portugal. And your birthday is, of course, within four days of my birthday. And we know this about each other. So, And you're like, oh, that sounds great. I'd love to go wine tasting in Portugal. And I was Can I like, invite myself? I was like, <laughs> come through. And so you're like, okay. And you literally just book a ticket from Bangkok to Lisbon. 
yeah, it was less than two days after I chatted with you and just booked a flight. Your spontaneity is one of the things that I love most about you and have always appreciated over the years. But let's just talk about the weekend and who we went with and what it was like. I mean, I will just say this too, because Maverick Show listeners know some of the people that we went with. So Sean Tierney has been on the Maverick Show multiple times. He rolled with us. Becky Gillespie has also been on the Maverick Show two times, and she rolled with us. And then you rolled with us and brought two of your amazing friends. And we had this six-person crew, and we rented a villa in the middle of the wine country, and it was just completely epic. Yeah, it was just so much fun having great people. I mean, obviously, I know why you've had Sean and Becky on the show so many times. Like, they're just such a wealth of knowledge from nomading to crypto to buying homes in Lisbon. Insane amount of knowledge sharing besides wine sharing and music sharing over the weekend. Well, the music sharing was amazing. And of course, everyone that's listened to the Sean Tierney episode and the Becky Gillespie episode knows that they are both incredibly talented musicians and I've had them perform songs on the show. And you, of course, are also an amazingly talented musician. And I told them Danny is coming and she is also a talented musician. So I was like, if we're literally renting a villa and I have three crazy talented musicians in the same villa, I was like, we got to bring the instruments. So we had two guitars, a ukulele, a keyboard, and three incredibly talented singers and musicians. And when we came back from the all-day wine tasting, we started drinking wine at 1030 in the morning. We got back to our villa at midnight. Mm-hmm. We bust out the instruments and we have a jam session in our living room until three o'clock in the morning. I actually think it was like 430 <laughs> when we went to bed. I'm pretty positive it was 430 in the morning. It was so amazing. It was so special. And then this particular bottle that we are drinking your homegirl, Megan, who I had not even met before this trip, you just brought, you're like, I'm going to bring some of my crew. I was like, anybody that rolls with Danny is going to be amazing and super cool. Definitely bring them. And of course, we all connected and had this amazing weekend. And then Megan, shout out to Megan, bought me for my birthday this incredible bottle of wine, which is a super limited production from this premium winery in the Alentejo region. And they literally only make like 200 bottles of this per year and she bought it for me as a really special birthday present and i thought what better occasion to open this bottle of wine and drink it than when i'm doing this podcast with you right now thank you for sharing it is delicious definitely feels like they've only made 200 bottles of this wine (laughs) (laughs) so we are going to be drinking through that throughout the episode but i feel like also we should talk about where you and i met because this is a very cool story so i had done remote year which is a 12-month international work travel program in 2016, 2017, and traveled the world for a year with this incredible community of people, some of whom have also been on this podcast. And then after that, I was wanting to continue to nomad and plug into different work travel communities and meet different nomads. And so I did a three months with Hacker Paradise, which is another international work travel program for remote professionals. And you can do sort of one month at a time and different cities. And I was like, ooh, they're in some really cool cities. I would like to do this city and that city and this city. I'll take three months. And the very first city that I show up in for a hacker paradise was Da Nang, Vietnam, central Vietnam, right on the coast, right on the beach. And you were the program lead for Hacker Paradise for that group for that month. We met on day one and we just had this amazing connection and have been incredible friends ever since. That was such an interesting trip because it was such a small group of us. I think there was only probably like 13 people on the trip. So everybody became so close. It was amazing. It was such a special month. And then you and I would continue to run into each other around the world. There was this one incredible moment. I was staying in Valencia, Spain for a month and I walk out of my building and I literally see you. I hadn't seen you in, I don't know, a year. And I walk out of my building and I literally see you walking down the sidewalk 
And I'm like, no way. And then you're like, no way. And then we give each other this huge hug. And then we're like, where are you staying? And we were staying in the same building in Valencia. Yeah. So weird. That was totally insane. That's what I love the most about the nomad life is like you always are going to run into the most random people in the most random places or the most random people know your best friends. Like it is always the connection and the network. Yeah, it's totally, totally, totally incredible. I was just thinking at the villa this weekend when we were there in the wine country, I was like, well, I met Sean through the Remote Year Alumni Network. I met you through the Hacker Paradise Network. I met Becky through the Nomad Cruise and that network. And then through you, I now know Megan and Taylor that joined us for that weekend. And it's just like all of these universes just continue to coalesce and come back around Mm -hmm. and reintegrate in your life and bring new, more amazing people into your life. And it's just awesome. Yeah, it's so amazing to see. So I feel like we also need to talk about what came out of this weekend. Speaking of spontaneous travel decisions that nomads make and things that you are inspired to do when you are surrounded by other amazing people that are doing inspiring things. Because one of the things that you and I try to do is not only travel to epic places that are extraordinary and amazing to experience the physical location, but we try to surround ourselves with extraordinary human beings that are brilliant, that are interesting, that are just kind and wonderful, that are inspiring in all these different levels, and just like people that are amazing, right? That's why I hang out with you. <laughs> well, ditto. Always. Exactly. And so <laughs> we're like, let's invite like six amazing people and just go have this wine tasting weekend together. And what ended up coming out of that weekend? I mean, a lot of things. My knowledge of NFTs and crypto from Becky was insane. Just exploding my mind about even like my understanding of why would you buy an NFT? I had no understanding of NFTs and utility until you told me all of your stories about V friends. And then when you started talking about the Royals getting to go to a gala in Ghana and like dress up super fancy, I was like, I got to get in on this. Like, tell me more about this NFT and just realizing that for not a lot, I could buy a ticket to this gala, have this permanent piece of artwork. And that was amazing. First of all, shout out to Ivy Shu, who I interviewed a few episodes back where I learned about this particular NFT project because she talked about it on her Maverick Show episode. And she was like, there's this amazing NFT project by this Ghanaian artist. And everyone who buys this NFT and buys into this collection, you get to attend this gala in Accra in Ghana at the end of 2022 in December. And I was like, that's unbelievable. She had already bought one. You know, she's going. She's like, I'm going. I've never been to Ghana before. And Ghana, of course, is one of my favorite countries. And so she and I were talking about Ghana. She's like, I'm going this year for my first time. And this is the context in which I'm going. I was like, so as soon as that episode was over, I literally go to the website and look it up. And then I buy the NFT. I'm like, I'm going too. And then this weekend, I'm telling you guys about this. And Immediately this weekend, you, Becky, and Megan all go and buy the NFT. So we're all going together to this gala in Ghana now. I'm so excited. I got an NFT. I learned how to set up a MetaMask so that I could get an NFT. Just that out of the weekend alone was amazing. It was super, super amazing. And then... I told you what I'm doing for the final four months of the year. (laughs) I was like, I told you, I was like, I registered for Remote Year's four-month program, which is the first time they've ever done an all-Africa itinerary. And it's the last four months of this year. And it goes to South Africa. It goes to Kenya. It goes to Tanzania. And it goes to Senegal. And then after that, I'm going to just hop over to Ghana and go to this gala. And you were like... Can I go? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is always the theme with you. It's like, you tell me what you're doing. And I'm just like, can I go? 
can I invite myself on this adventure? Is it cool? <laughs> I was like, you're always welcome on any adventure that I ever go on, Danny. And so literally this weekend before we left the wine region, you had signed up for the four-month remote year program with me. Yep. So you and I are now planning to spend four months in Africa together this year and culminate that with the NFT gala in Ghana. Yeah, I am so excited. It's going to be the most amazing, just like cultural immersion trip and meaning to go back to Africa. I was thinking of going to South Africa next year and now get to go in September. Like, I'm super, super stoked on this. It's so amazing. And I know that Africa has a major place in not only your heart, but your travel journey and your personal development, everything else. So I want to actually maybe now go back a little bit and talk a little bit about just your background and your backstory. Can you share a little bit about where you grew up? And as you were growing up, how did your interest in international travel start to develop when you think back? No, I grew up in a super small town, Northern California, very traditional Catholic family, stay-at-home mom, dad owned a business. Like it was very like nice, small town America. And we used to go to Mexico for vacations. Every year we'd go to Mexico, we'd go to trips in the Caribbean but a lot of those were like all-inclusive resort kind of style travel. And I remember as a kid going into the markets in Mexico, seeing the chickens hanging and going in these traditional markets and being so just in love with being in town, being in the city and realizing like that was the place I wanted to be. I didn't want to be at this beach resort, but I would always be like, hey, can we go check out the markets? Can we be in the city? And I remember my parents realizing that like at an early age. And then growing up, I just really enjoyed giving back to my community. And when I was 16, my aunt actually invited me on a mission trip with her church to Thailand. And so at 16 years old, I went for two weeks to the hill tribe villages of Chiang Mai and just learned about what it was like living in these hill tribes. I learned about the clash of cultures between the hill tribe villagers and the Thai people and like the educational system. And we were working in a school for Hill Tribe children. And it was just such an eye-opening experience for me to be in the most rural parts of Northern Thailand at 16 years old. And it was that trip that was the catalyst for, I think, my entire lifestyle. Because that was the moment that I originally thought, I want to go into some kind of international affairs, social justice. I want to do something that is giving back and in which I get to travel. That's amazing. And then one of your major international experiences relatively early on in your adulthood was your trip to Uganda. Can you talk about how that came about and then what the experience was like in Uganda? Yeah, so... In college, I was studying economics, and I really wanted to understand more international economics. And my university offered a number of scholarships to go either study abroad or do volunteer work over the summer. And so I ended up getting a few scholarships one summer. And actually, my first trip was to Peru. And I was working with these women who are victims of rape and domestic violence in the city. And these were girls as young as 11 years old. And that experience led me actually into working for Tom's Shoes, which was like a weird, I randomly had a call with someone who worked at Tom's, was talking about my experience. And she's like, hey, you should be an intern. We're looking for someone to work with us and to help us with our shoe drop planning. And so I started working for Tom's. I would take the emails and look through them and help kind of basically reply and be like, hey, we can or we can't donate shoes at this time. And one of the emails that came through was this girl who had volunteered with this amazing program. It's still in Uganda. It's called The Real Uganda. It's run by this woman named Leslie Wayhill. She is amazing. And the program was amazing. But the girl who emailed me was like, hey, we need shoes for the kids in the school I'm volunteering with. And I was like, right now, I can't give you shoes. But I would love to know more about your organization. And she just sent me all of this amazing like three, four page email about how her trip and her experience. 
And I knew that moment. I'm like, I have to go to Uganda. I have to experience this. And so I immediately emailed the real Uganda and was like, hey, I want to do your trip. Put me in the most rural place possible. I want this experience. I want to do something that's giving back and I want to experience the culture here. And so that next summer I went to Uganda and ended up living on this farm. And it was 30 minutes outside of town by Matatu, which is like the local transportation bus. And like you're in this bus with like 30 chickens, three goats, 14, 15, 16 people, four babies. Literally, it's a little 10-person van. And you're just all of these people and things. The Matatu experience is amazing in Uganda. I can remember because I was in Kampala and I was also in Jinja in 2018. It was my first time. And I have a very good Ugandan friend of mine who I know through nomading. And she was back in Kampala and living there. And I was in Nairobi in Kenya for a month. And she was like, dude, if you're in Nairobi, like you better come to Uganda and you can stay with me in Kampala. Like I'll take you out. I'll show you the country. I was like 100% of course. Right. And so she, it was amazing. I mean, so much of that trip actually really inspired me to see so much of other parts of Africa because it was just so magical. And she showed me so many amazing things, but the Matatu experience, I mean, imagine a van that you would think is like, oh, this is an eight passenger van or something Mm -hmm. like that. And then it's like a mini bus, right? Like a public bus type of service. And so you pay to ride it. And so I'm, you know, we get in the van and then there's like about eight or so people eventually are in there. It's like, oh, it's time to go. They're, they're going to leave now because there's eight people in the van. No. No. They're like waving people to come back over to get into the van. All of a sudden, another dude gets in. And then another dude like holding three chickens gets in the eight person van that already has nine people. And now there's a dude with three chickens boarding the van. And you'll wait for like 25 minutes on the side of the road for them to fill that van to the brim. Right. Like you'll end up with someone's <laughs> child on your lap. Yeah. You have like a goat licking your ankle. Some dude's chicken is coming under your seat, like <laughs> yes. in front of you. Yeah. But it's an absolutely amazing local experience that you must simply do. Yeah. It's the best form of transport. It's yeah. So entertaining. But it was really cool, too. I mean, Kampala is an unbelievable city, and there's so much amazing stuff there. But going out to Jinja, I know you spent some time there and on the outskirts of Jinja, and would love for you to talk about that, because I went out there initially just to sort of see it, because it is the source of the Nile River. Oh, man, yeah. Which is amazing, because I had lived previously in Egypt for about a year, and so my association with the Nile River is very much with Egypt. But in reality, the Nile River irrigates 11 African countries, and the source of it is in Uganda. And so the fact that the source is there, it gives it so much significance globally and internationally. So when Mahatma Gandhi, for example, passed away, he wanted some of his ashes, he left instructions for some of his ashes to be scattered in the Nile River and put in at Jinja in Uganda, which was the source. And so when you go there, there's like all of these shrines to Mahatma Gandhi and like all of these Indian politicians that like make these pilgrimages pay homage in Jinja, mm-hmm. Uganda. And it's just like this incredible place. Yeah, it had a very large Indian influence, but I also think that was part of the political system there as well. And Uganda used to be like considered, I believe, the Pearl of Africa. It is one of the most stunning, beautiful, green, lush places you could be. And I don't know if you did one of the whitewater rafting trips. I did not in Uganda, no. Oh, that was fun. Definitely, if you ever go back, whitewater raft. The source of the Nile, like you got to go on it. That's amazing. Got to get in. But yeah, I found the people of Uganda, Ugandan culture, the music, the food, it's the posha and beans. But the people put so much love into everything. I lived in the village, middle of nowhere, no running water, no electricity on a farm. And you just picked what you could grow on your farm. And that's what most people did. And if you went to someone's house to visit, they would kill a chicken for you. They'd have two chickens and they would kill the chicken for you to like feed you because you were the guest. And that was the most beautiful thing to me living there was just the giving to people who came. The man who started this organization I was working for was just like a local guy 
figured out how to farm and how to make money for himself off farming. And he wanted to teach every single villager that he could how to farm and to farm sustainably so that they could thrive on their own land. And it was amazing to go back like a few years later and just see how many people his organization had impacted. This village went from no electricity, no running water, one school to full all electricity. These farms that we had helped plant, these people had expanded their land five, six, seven fold. It was insane to see what just teaching someone how to like properly grow food, how it could change an entire village. That's amazing. Let me ask you this. What are your reflections specifically on charitable work, volunteerism, and specifically and particularly in terms of white folks getting involved with charitable work on the continent of Africa, some of those power dynamics that oftentimes tend to arise and sort of navigating those and things like that. I mean, I'm curious about sort of your reflections in terms of from the start until now, in terms of your thinking on that, and then also any tips that you would have for folks that are interested in making a positive contribution and just sort of how to navigate some of the important complexities there. Yeah. You know, I think it's a really a complex issue of volunteerism because for me, my first experience was a mission trip in which we were doing puppet shows about Jesus in front of villagers who didn't even speak English. And we're trying to teach. And that to me, that proselytization, very not into that because that village needed so much more than to learn about Jesus walking on water. There was major medical issues going on. There's major educational issues that were going on. But at 16, I got to see that and I got to recognize that and understand that. And then when I went to college, my first trip in Peru was volunteerism. And I got to see the organization I worked with did need volunteers. They needed people to help them fill out their fair trade agreement forms. They need someone to help teach design. I could do the fair trade agreement forms, but I was 19 years old. There wasn't a lot of knowledge that I could impart upon this organization or help them. I could just do whatever random thing they gave me. And the same with like my first Uganda trip. I was like the token white girl just going from farm to farm, helping this villager who's like starting this nonprofit make his nonprofit seem more influential because he had Gamuzungu with him who was supporting him and saying, look, I have international people supporting my project. I didn't do a lot more than that because I was learning agriculture at the same time. But that experience opened my eyes to the projects that were going on. What does it really mean to give back? What does it mean to open a nonprofit organization? And when I went back there, I tried to start one. I spent a year trying to start a nonprofit. And I worked with a lot of other nonprofit organizations and NGOs in the region. And one thing I realized is you need to do your research. If you're doing volunteerism, if you plan on going somewhere, do your research on who you're volunteering with and also understand what you are giving and why you're giving it. Because sometimes what you're giving can be something that's taking away from someone else. So if you're painting a building, should you actually be paying someone local to paint that building? If you're building a well, should you be training the locals how to build that well, how to maintain that well? If you're volunteering, are you someone who is in finance and does the nonprofit need someone to train them in how to do their finances? Do they need someone to teach their women how to do business? Those are things you can start looking at as like, does a nonprofit need a photographer to work with them to build their portfolio and help them build a website or do the photography? So there's like a lot of ways you can volunteer, but like really look at it in a way of like, how can my expertise actually help these people? And also, is this nonprofit locally run? Is it a local NGO? Because so often it is that white savior sort of complex of coming in of like, hey, I see a problem. I'm going to fix it versus I see a problem. 
let me check to see if that's actually a problem for the community. Or is there something? I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Thing bigger that they actually need help with. Yeah, 100%. And what is the community already doing about it? Clearly, they have identified their own priorities. And so if you are going to try to help or you want to contribute, right, the whole concept of empowering the local people to define their own problems and identify their own solutions. And then from your perspective, does that mean that they can most use you donating money? And you helping to raise money to donate to just fund the local initiatives that they're already running without you actually getting involved? Or do you have some type of really specific sort of expertise where your skills can be deployed in a framework that the local people are designing and running and you can just fit in under their leadership and just deliver those skills for them to do certain things or whatever it may be. But I think that's really the important part is sort of acting in solidarity with people and allowing them to lead and design and for you to just sort of slot in under their leadership. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of times we go in being like, oh, we need to educate them about this thing or this other thing, or they need to do this differently. But going in and just telling someone that they're doing it wrong is never really the right way to enter into that relationship. So like if you see something that could be done better, go in and learn why they're doing things the way they are. Don't just go in and be like, this is wrong, but learn why they're doing it. Maybe they don't know that there is something better, but maybe they do. And maybe it just doesn't work for the environment that they're in. Or if they don't know, there is opportunity to show them, but not tell them. It's to show, it's to teach, but not necessarily just be like, you need to do it this way. Yeah. I think being really cognizant of those power dynamics in any time you're engaging with other communities is super important to be and to be culturally respectful and to be, you know, all of those other things. Yeah. I mean, I think this goes back a lot to, I have been doing a lot of research and courses and stuff on like trauma centered design, equity centered design. And At the center of all of it is culture and context. And it's always going back to where are these people coming from? What are their experiences? Even what traumas have they faced in the past that is impacting how they react now? Yeah, 100%. Well, you have done a bunch of other travel around Africa. You mentioned whitewater rafting in Uganda. I know you have also done whitewater rafting in Namibia. Can you talk a little bit about some of your whitewater rafting, whitewater kayaking experiences in Africa? Oh, my God. Yeah. So whitewater kayaking on the border of Namibia was probably one of the best New Year's I've ever had. I went with a couple people from Hacker Paradise and a friend of mine who's South African to the Orange River. And it's basically like you are kayaking down the moon. You're on this river. You're kayaking. You're falling out of your kayak. You're losing everything. But when you look to left and right, it's just rocks. It's just desert. There might be a plant. There might be like a goat. There's miles that you're kayaking, kilometers that you're kayaking that are literally just desert on both sides, just giant rocks. And you're like, this feels weird to be in just the middle of nowhere, just rowing down like the moon. And that was such a fun experience. I learned 
so much about myself. One, I'm terrible at kayaking. Awful. Don't put me in the lead. Two, go kayaking with a significant other to see if you actually work out. Because by the end of it, we couldn't even talk to each other. We'll talk in a week. Like, let's just take a break after these five days. Definitely, it's a communication-based project when you're kayaking down a river with someone else. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about your theory on that? Because I think it's actually a really good one. I actually heard it after I already had this experience and felt this experience. I've been listening to this book called How to Not Die Alone, which like as a nomad, it's sometimes really hard to meet people to date. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll read this book. And in the book, one of the very first things it talks about is the canoe philosophy, where it's go with your significant other in a canoe and see how you communicate. Because a relationship, especially like a nomad relationship, where you are in these very high intense situations, pretty often when you're traveling or you're very long distance, as I've been in a number of my nomadic relationships, communication is key. So if you can't canoe with the person, then you're never going to be able to actually maintain a safe and positive relationship with that person. Because it's like the communication is number one. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. I want to ask you a little bit more about your thoughts and experiences and just sort of reflections, I guess, at this point on dating and finding connection, finding love as a nomad. You've now been in this lifestyle for five years. And one of the questions that I get asked all the time by people is how does dating work? So at this point, kind of thinking back over the last five years, I would love any reflections you have and maybe even tips or perspectives that people might want to consider, maybe even if they're newer, kind of getting into this nomad lifestyle, but how does dating work? I think dating as a nomad makes you take a good, hard look at yourself and recognize who you are in relationships and who you want to be in relationships. And it really forces you to look at what do you want in a relationship? Because I think everywhere you go, it's kind of different. I think for the first five years, I was really okay with just meeting people while traveling and really using it as an experience to meet new people, have fun, have a temporary relationship, build a friendship. And it can be hard though, because once you start to have more feelings for someone and you realize that person can't move with you or can't live the same lifestyle, it causes you to put a lot of walls up, I think. For me, dating as a nomad has been great in certain ways. I've met amazing people. I've had amazing experiences that I would have never had had I not met someone who lived in the country that I was traveling. I think some of my best friends are people that I've dated while traveling. But then it's also been really difficult because I look back on relationships I've had and then like maybe if I hadn't had that wall up, it could have been more than what it was. Or if I was willing to settle down, it could have been more. So then you have to recognize, what do I want? Do I want a really deep relationship that is forever? Do I want a deep relationship that's for now? And am I okay with that? So that's actually been a really interesting sort of realization I've had. But I've I've loved dating while abroad because I have learned so many things about different cultures, from South African to Argentinian to Italian. As my sister says, dongs all over the world. <laughs> like, we can cut that (laughs) well I know that one of the ways that you process a lot of your thoughts and your emotions and your reflections and your developing perspectives is through songwriting and through music And I was wondering if you can share a little bit about the history of the role that music has played in your life and what music and songwriting means to you. Songwriting has been 
a huge part of my life, I think, ever since I can literally remember speaking. I remember sitting in the back of my mom's car just writing songs. I would sing three years old, four years old. I'm singing songs. I'm just making up about the random man crossing the street, the car. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a neurological surgeon. So I remember at four years old playing in my grandma's garden, singing about being like the number one doctor in the world, Doogie Howser style. Like I just, you know, everything I wanted in life as a kid, I would turn into song. And then I started learning how to play piano at eight. And that just spurned my love for songwriting. I used to just play. My mom could never get me to practice, but I would always play songs that I made up. And my grandma loved them. And she would always listen to me and support me. And she bought my first guitar at 16 and was like, here's something you can take with you whenever you want to write music and travel. And I still have that guitar and I left it in Bali and it's broken. It doesn't work, but I just don't want to get rid of it because she was so supportive of my music and my parents have always been super supportive. So I think songwriting just ended up becoming, I was never very good at expressing myself growing up, never really good at expressing emotions. Even my friends in high school would be like, ah, you're so shallow. You could never drown in your own thoughts. I wasn't very like emotive person. I'm always just very happy. And songwriting is sort of that journal for me. It's sort of when something comes up in my life or something I'm struggling with, I just write it into song. Or if I'm on my motorbike and I just all of a sudden think of, I have a feeling or I think of something, suddenly one sentence in my mind turns into four paragraphs of lyrics. And that's kind of how I've always just dealt with emotions, especially like romantic emotions, confusing emotions. And so traveling actually has ended up with a lot of songs, whether those are from direct relationships or, you know, emotions about I wrote this song about how much I hated like spiritual culture in Bali and I played it at a comedy show. And it was just how it was so demanding of me of like, oh, did you sage yet? Did you put out your crystals in the moonlight? Why aren't you happy? And I was like, just fuck off with your sage. Like, I don't need that. That's not me right now. Like, that's not the thing that's going to change my energy right now. You know, I had a friend pass away, like a really, really close friend in Bali passed away last summer. And the way that I was able to deal with this was I wrote a song. I played it for you the other night during wine tasting. That was how I was able to deal through those emotions. And that was what I was able to give back to him was like at his funeral, like I brought my keyboard and I played this song for him because it was like, how do I say these things that I want to say of what you meant to me now that I can't say them to you? And so that was the best way I could honor him. And so, yeah, songs have just always been a way of honoring my feelings and honoring other people. And I am trying to also help other people honor their feelings and things. I, last year for Valentine's Day, asked my friends if they wanted me to write them love songs for their loved ones. And, you know, I had five friends come to me and be like, yeah, can you write one for my husband or my wife? And so I just spent a couple of days just writing songs for people. And it was so much fun to kind of have a topic and be able to turn that song into something that then was able to have like a meaningful experience for someone else. And I think that's what music is too, is it's not just for me, but it's like, how can my story help someone else feel like they're not alone in those feelings or help them reminisce about a good time or to grow from those emotions? That's so awesome. And as you know, I am such a big fan of your music. Would you be down to play one of your original numbers for the Maverick Show audience? I would be happy to. I think I've had enough wine at this point that I can say yes to that. <laughs> Maybe one more sip before I play, but yes. Do you want to give any preface or context to the song that you're going to play? Yeah. So I wrote this song. It's actually one of my older songs. I wrote it after I had been traveling, after I moved back to California from Uganda and London. And I dated this guy long distance when I was living in Uganda. I had met him in London and we broke up. And then I moved back home and we started dating again a year later. We broke up again. 
then I wrote this song realizing that that sort of relationship he wanted was like very much more of a controlling relationship of controlling who I was. And I also felt like living in this small town was the same way of the environment really wanting to control who I was and realizing that I was never going to be a small town person. I was never going to be a person who could settle down in a suburb. Traveling to me was more important. And over time, this song has kind of changed. I've added lyrics. I've added pieces based on other relationships I've had that have been really holding me back. I'm looking for a relationship. And I think most nomads who are single are the same way. We're looking for relationships that are really supportive, that are going to help you grow and be better and want you to do the things that make you happy and excited. And I feel like I kept falling into these relationships in which the person was trying to dampen my light to bring me further down. And the same thing was settling in this small town as it was like trying to make me too much of this monochrome human rather than like the rainbow sparkle personality that I love and I want to be. And so that's really what this song's all about. One of the lyrics is like, I need the world more than I need a man. And that was like such a defining moment for me when I realized that. And that's kind of what made me decide to travel. I'm never going to find love staying in one place because those aren't the people for me. That's not the love that I'm looking for. Like I'm looking for this extravagant traveler, adventure, spontaneity kind of thing. Amazing. All right, folks, here is Danny Dirks performing the traveling song on The Maverick Show. But I, I, 
That is one of my favorite songs of yours. I remember the first time I actually heard that song was when I was in the middle of pandemic quarantine, was not traveling, had not seen you or any of my nomad friends in such a long time. And you posted a video of you playing that song. And I just saw it. And I saw you, who, of course, I missed you very much. But then I heard the song and then the lyrics and the themes in that song. And it just, like, hit me completely emotionally the first time I heard it. And so it's one of my most meaningful songs that you've done. Thank you. And I'm really glad that it was impactful and it kept you entertained during the pandemic. I know when I started posting to Instagram... I think I posted 26 songs or maybe 30 songs. And I just had a friend who was like, why aren't you playing your music? Why aren't you posting it? He's like, I challenge you every day this month, post a song. And so I did. And it spurned my, this is everyday love project and writing more love songs. And now I think it's something that I really want to bring back and be focusing more on is recording more songs, recording more music on my adventures. That's so awesome. Well, let's talk about some more of your adventures because of all of the travelers I know, you had some of the most epic adventures. And I want to talk a little bit about some of them. The first place that I want to ask you about sticking with the continent of Africa is your experiences in South Africa. I know you've been multiple times and the country has a lot of significance for you, but can you talk about some of your most memorable experiences in South Africa? Oh, man. I mean, I'm so excited to be going back there in September with you and having some more great adventures. I think my first time in South Africa, it was sort of a country that really surprised me. I think coming from Uganda and being in East African country, it's very, very different. Like you go to Cape Town and you just see such the division between classes, rich, poor, race, everything there. And to experience that and try and live within it with local people. And so there's a lot of like really exciting things I got to do. Like we talked about going to Rands and like being able to go to not just Rands, but like, did you go to the block parties in, there's like one block party in one of the townships where it's like trucks out there and guys just serving shots of alcohol and there's DJs just like lined up in the middle of the block. Going out there with my friends from the township was just such an eye-opening fun experience because 
all you hear about is like the dangers of the townships and everything. But like you go there with your friends who live there every day and such an experience to see such joy and happy like on a Sunday and everyone's just out barbecuing and dancing and having a good time. You go to Rand's and order the big bowls of meat and you're just like, let's share this together. And you're just sharing meat together. And I remember one time I went and had the barbecue with some friends, went to Mazzoli's. It's another one similar. It's this barbecue. And I went with some of my friends and they're like, can we just tell you, like, we've never brought a Westerner here. We've never brought a white person to this barbecue and to be here sharing this. And like, you're eating with your hands out of the same bowl. They're like, to share this with you is amazing. This is so great to have you here and have you so excited to be a part of our experience. And it is really exciting to go to these townships, but then it's also really, really scary too, because a few weeks before there was a shooting at this, at Mazzoli's, there's this weird dichotomy that you're in South Africa. You want to just be a hundred percent involved and a hundred percent taking part of everything. But then you also are always sort of on this edge of, is this safe? I like got to also go to another one of the most dangerous places with one of the ex gang members from, he used to be in one of the prison gangs and his township is one of the most dangerous in the world and I got invited to go in and just build kites for kite day like I don't know if you know about kite day in South Africa it's like everyone goes to the beach everyone builds these kites it's a big day across the country but a lot of the kids in these townships don't get to participate they just see the kites on the beach and they're so close so I got to go with some friends who have been doing a documentary on the township and go build kites with the kids. And that was like a super impactful experience because you got to learn about what is life like for children in the townships, especially some of these most dangerous ones. And how do you support the local community that wants to build changes? And so they're working on building a community center um, and they're building it in a way that actually is fully bulletproof. So like the kids have like a safe place to play throughout their childhood. So that was like an impactful experience. But then if we want to go to adventure stories, I digressed, but <laughs> adventure stories, the shark cage diving with my parents, my first trip to South Africa, a big thing is to go out with the great whites and you go get in a wetsuit and you hold your breath underwater in a cage and you wait for sharks to come to you while they throw in fish guts into the water and you're just sitting there floating around, fish guts hitting you in the face, waiting for a shark to come. And I just remember my mom, who's like so small, so cute. She's just like, I want to try this. And she just like jumped right in, getting hit in the face with fish guts, just freezing cold. Like I see her shivering in there and she's like, I want to see the shark. I want to see the shark. I think she and I and maybe like one other people were the only people who saw sharks and they weren't great whites. But the trip was very memorable in that it was just such a weird out-of-the-box experience to go do. But then it also was one of my first experiences with aqua tourism, like ocean tourism, which in the same sense as we talk about with voluntourism, you have to be really aware of who you're going with, what they're doing, and whether or not it's actually good for the environment or for the fish. If I'm going out there with 30 other boats, just churning the water with fish guts to get great whites to come, is that the best for that region? So that was kind of something that afterwards I thought about. And then bungee jumping was probably another one of my favorite experiences. One of the biggest bungee jumps in the world is in South Africa. It's like this massive bridge. We stayed overnight. We drove up the garden route, which was absolutely stunning. Stayed in this cute little town on this inlet and then yeah it was my first bungee jumping experience freaking ridiculous but yeah that was super exhilarating it's one of those things where I think that was one of the moments where I realized that I sometimes just I just jump into things like I literally just standing there and he's like do you want to push or do you want to jump and I'm like you know what if it's gonna hurt I'm just gonna jump in and it wasn't bad until you're sitting there upside down for like five minutes longer. Will they pull you back up? 
because you're just dangling upside down and it feels like your feet are just slowly slipping out of the like container that's like holding you and you're just like upside down staring at the ground you're like am I slipping or am I okay like you can't really tell (laughs) so yeah that was a really fun exciting experience in South Africa I feel like there's been so many Africa burn is another one I highly recommend going April it's usually when it is and it's like mini burning man in the desert but it's all like local south african djs playing in the desert all these people put like tons of money into building amazing artwork and it's like four hours away from cape town in the Karoo. so you're like in the desert in this amazing part of south africa surrounded by amazing humans from all over the world and it's just the burning man principles which are just be self-sustaining to give back i was part of this theater or it was like a cinema camp and so we just played movies like all day for anybody who wanted to come we made cocktails and played movies and that was like our gift so yeah that was a really cool experience as well all right we are gonna pause here and call this the end of part one please be sure to tune in to the next episode to hear the conclusion of my interview with danny dirks Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.